Hello and welcome to Your Life Abroad. My name is Andre and I'm joined by my co-hosts Alexa, Nathan and Yustan. This week we discuss the ever-developing story of Vitaly Shishov, a Belarusian activist who was found hanged in a cave park and the suspicious circumstances surrounding the apparent suicide. His death adds to a series of events in connection with the growing dictatorial tendencies of Belarusian President Lukashenko. This and more on Sakhodonyi Ukrainsi, the podcast for all things Ukrainian. On the day that we're recording today marks the final day of the Olympics uh, in Tokyo. And as a final update, we, uh, we thought we'd go through, see what the final medal tally is for the countries and, you know, have a look where Ukraina is and how they went. So number one at the moment is the United States with 39 gold medals, 41 silver and 33 bronze. China is second with 38 gold, 32 silver and 18 bronze. Japan, 27 gold, 14 silver, uh, 17 bronze. Great Britain is fourth with 22 gold, 21 silver and 22 bronze. Uh, The Russian Olympic Committee is uh, fifth with 20 gold, 27 silver and 23 bronze. Australia came sixth with 17 gold, 7 silver and 22 bronze. Netherlands is seventh with 10 gold, uh, 12 silver, 14 bronze. Germany is eighth with 10 gold, 11 silver and 16 bronze. Italy is ninth with 10 gold, 10 silver and 20 bronze. And France is 10th with 9 gold, 12 silver and 11 bronze medals. So I think that's a pretty close uh, tie at the top there when it comes to America and China with just the one gold medal difference between them. Although the United States has significantly more silver medals and also bronze medals. Uh, So China has 88 medals in total, whereas the United States has 113 medals in total. Now, if we go down to where Ukraina is, they actually jumped up from our last update. They were sit, uh, sitting around 64, I believe it was, and have jumped now up to 44th place with one gold medal, six silver medals, and 12 bronze medals, making that 19 medals in total for Ukraina. So, um, Alexa, how does this rank, um, the Tokyo Olympics, how does this rank in terms of um, Ukraina's like achievements versus previous Olympics? So in terms of Ukraine's previous Olympics, um, so Ukraine has done a lot better than in Rio. In Rio, Ukraine had only won a total of 11 medals, while this time we've won, um, how many did you say, Nathan, it was? 19? Yeah. 19, yes. Uh, So we've we've won the same amount of medals as we did in London. However, in London, we won a few more golds with five gold, four silver, 10 bronze. So it's kind of gone a little bit the other way. However, in saying that, we sent a significantly smaller team this year. So to Tokyo, Ukraine only sent 155 athletes, whilst to London, Ukraine had sent 238. So I think, in a sense, the athletes have done quite well, considering it's a smaller team. And even for Brazil, we'd sent 203. So I think probably the strength of Ukraine's Olympic team comes from how far the Olympics are. So I think we'll do quite well in Paris because it'll be a lot cheaper to fly the the whole team out to Paris than it is to fly them across the whole planet to um, Brazil or Tokyo. Hmm. And also it's probably, you know, the climate will be pretty identical 
in yeah, the I would add in there that you know there was a lot more reluctance to send more people um, to the Olympics because of COVID. But well, you know, we'll see what happens um, at the next Olympic Games. Yeah, and because um, Ukraine is such a young participant as an independent country in the Olympics, you still get quite a lot of firsts. So Ukraine won its first ever medal in artistic swimming, which was a bronze in the duet. And then we went on to win another bronze in the artistic swimming team event. So we broke two kind of firsts there in the same event. And we also won our first ever bronze for a tennis match with Svitolina coming third again. And we won our first ever medal in women's judo, which was run run which was won by Daria Bilodid, which we spoke about in our previous episode about her trepidations of participating in the event. Uh, what do you reckon, Andre? Out of all the events, which one would you have gone to have watched? Uh, I, I usually prefer the athletics because I feel like that's the one I can relate to most because considering that we've all done it in school because uh, I'm not really too into tennis or Greco-Roman wrestling. <laughs> yeah, or wrestling. I think seeing the fencing, that would be an interesting one to see, though, because I've never seen it up close, really. But yeah, mm. I think athletics is, uh, for me, the best one. What about you, Nathan? I would definitely go see tennis. I don't know what's wrong with you, Andre. Uh, tennis is the best. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I remember when uh, Sydney 2000 Olympics were here, I was only five years old at the time, but I remember vividly going to see the diving and we saw the equestrian as well. And I remember a horse breaking its leg on one of the jumps. That's my two memories of the Sydney 2000 Olympics. Um, so I remember equestrian though, was like, it's almost like playing golf. You just, you're in the heat and you have to like walk on these like massive, like trails to get to the different jumps and then like every now and then you see like a horse jump past and you're like oh that was <laughs> worth the wait um so a question i probably wouldn't go to again but um definitely i would want to go see the tennis um and um, weightlifting is something i would also want to see i didn't see it when we had um invictus here because when i was working i saw the swimming that was interesting but i would definitely weightlifting and uh tennis see for me i'd probably go watch the canoe racing or probably like in the athletics or youth swimming just because they're quick paced events so there's lots of action going the one that i found is probably the best for television is the artistic swimming because you kind of get to see the cool shots of under the pool of them doing like all the different moves to like stay like synchronized but i don't think it would like it would be because all you'd see is the feet and splashing water and i don't know how long that would be interesting for me. <laughs> While on the TV, you get all the different shots and stuff, and then they play it back in slow motion. I feel like you can appreciate the skill a bit more, but that's me. <laughs> yeah, true. Well, I guess, you know, that was a solid achievement by the Ukrainian team this year and see what happens. Um, well, in next year, I guess, for the uh, Winter Olympics and then at the next Summer Olympics as well, see what happens then. Yeah, should be fun. Beijing 2022. Hopefully that's not postponed. <laughs> yeah, and hopefully that the team is bigger and we can get more medals. <laughs> Even though we usually get a lot of gold in the winter ones, but... You say a lot when it's like one medal, but it's usually we only win one or two medals. <laughs> yeah, uh, that's at least like 50% of uh, your total, right? <laughs> Just got to catch up to the United States, 39 gold. <laughs>
And we now move on to probably one of the biggest stories of the week, and that was the death of Belarusian activist Vitaly Shishov, who was found murdered in a cave park. Um, so Vitaly Shishov was a Belarusian activist who took part in the protests against Belarusian dictator Andrew Alexander, and due to his political beliefs, was forced to flee his country and obtain asylum in Ukraine. And Ukraine, Poland, and Lithuania have sort of become the hub of Belarusian opposition activity to the Lukashenko regime. And in Ukraine, Shishov led a organization that helped Belarusians flee Belarus and obtain permanent residency in Ukraine. And his organization was quite successful because Ukraine has become probably the largest of the free hubs where Belarusians can flee to. And that's partly because Belarusians don't need a visa to enter Ukraine. And also there's less of a cultural and language issue to deal with since a lot of Belarusians, most Belarusians speak Russian as a second language and most Ukrainians can speak Russian as well. So it leads to easier integration into society. And um, this story has kind of blown up around the world because the BBC reported on it, DW in Germany reported it, America picked it up. So it's a big story. And basically, so Vitaly Shishov went for a run Monday morning at nine o'clock. And when his girlfriend woke up, he hadn't returned home. And because um, there was rumors around the Belarusian community in Kyiv that Belarus's KGB was out to get activists, um, they got pretty wor worried and started looking for him. And they tried using uh, like those phone tracking apps and they found that his phone had been turned off. And at three o'clock that afternoon, they called the police. And by 8 a.m. the next morning, they found his body about a kilometer from his house in their local park where the Kiev Velodrome is located, which is on the outskirts of the city. And they found it his body hanging from a tree and... Kiev police have announced some preliminary details from the site. And so they've confirmed that his body suffered various injuries and lacerations across his face, knees, and chest. And they're currently investigating his death as either a suicide or a murder disguised to be as a suicide. And so far, they haven't confirmed as to who they believe is responsible. However, there is strong belief within not just the Belarusian community, but also the wider world that this attack was most likely carried out by Belarus's KGB. And this sort of comes, a lot of this comes down from the fact in the way his body was found. And they reckon that they staged his death as an apparent suicide. The tree stumps that he would have apparently used to commit suicide were too short to reach his body. And so therefore they reckon the scene was planted after his death to make it look like a suicide and divert attention. So Nathan, do you want to give us a bit of background as to the whole situation that's happening in Belarus? Yeah, so when I was looking into this story um, of Vitaly Shishov, um, I found that he was he was actually the head of an organization. It was called the Belarusian House in Ukraine. Now I tried to do um, I try to look up information on this particular organization. I couldn't find any website for them. I couldn't really find um, any information that was reported about them, which makes me think they're either a new organization or they just didn't have any um, thing out there. But all, all I was able to find was that they were an organization that helped people um, who are trying to escape Belarus 
um, to, you know, relocate into other countries like Ukraine. And that was what he was doing there, um, you know, helping people that were trying to, live, you know, living in exile or wanting to flee Belarus. He was helping them to establish themselves in Ukraine, which, you know, once there's that infrastructure in a country for people to move out of Belarus and establish themselves elsewhere, well, then that leaves, um, that provides a platform for Belarusians to speak out from abroad against President Lukashenko, which we know based on recent events, which I'm going to go into, Lukashenko does not want. Now, this has all started to really escalate since the elections that took place last year. Now, we covered those elections um, and you can find it in a previous episode, but to go over it a little, um, just to go over it again, Lukashenko was going up against uh, his opponent, a lady by the name, now I am absolutely going to get her name wrong, Chishinovsky. I think is Tichon, how it's uh, pronounced. Yeah. And she uh, she was running against Lukashenko and Lukashenko ended up winning in a landslide. Now afterwards it was then discovered that ballot papers were being burnt. There were ballot papers that were being sub, uh, given to people who were going to vote and they already had a dot marked in one of the boxes, meaning that since that dot was already in another box that uh, vote then became invalid uh, the numbers that were reported by the polling places because in belarus if the polling place is done counting they actually have to post on the window or on the building of that polling place what the electoral count was for each of the candidates the numbers that were posted on the buildings versus the numbers that were being reported by the news stations weren't matching up at all so there was a lot of uh, electoral f- fraud that went on in that election and Lukashenko's opponent ended up having to flee the country and is now living in exile. So automatically we can see there that he basically stole that election and he was, has been trying to crack down on any sort of opposition that has uh, come from whether it's critiques about that election or just any other form of opposition to him or his policies. So another example was in a recent uh, situation where a journalist who was traveling from Athens to Lithuania, his plane went over Belarus and once it entered the Belarusian airspace, it was uh, approached by uh, fighter jets that, that forced it to land under the pretense of having a bomb on board the plane. And as soon as they were landed in Minsk, the journalist was arrested by the authorities. Now, this was a journalist who had been critical of Lukashenko. And that's another example of Lukashenko trying to crack down on any, you know, dissidents that would go against his authority. Now we have the situation of this uh, activist being hung in the park in Kiev. And more recently, we have the situation where a a 24-year-old athlete from the Tokyo Olympics decided that instead of returning back home to Lukashenko, instead of returning back home to Belarus, she decided that she was going to meet up with her husband in uh, Poland. And now she is in Warsaw and she decided to defect from Belarus to Poland. And she said that she decided to make this, uh, she made this decision to leave the country actually as she was at the Tokyo airport and she was about to fly out. And she said that my grandmother called me and said that don't come back to Belarus because things aren't safe here now. So that was why she decided to then leave and join her husband. Now, 
this is really starting, especially since this has all happened within the last few months, we can really see how there's a real shift in the, um, I wouldn't say the power dynamic, but the enforcement of, you know, Lukashenko's policies and his ideas within the country. And this all links to the idea that, you know, Belarus is what's considered one of the last dictatorships of Europe in the sense that it hasn't really reformed that much since the fall of the Soviet Union. Lukashenko has held power for so long, and now we can see that it's, he's been holding power through illegitimate means, and he is now doubling down and trying to reinforce his, um, his position and will not accept anyone speaking out against him or any opposition to his policies, which are largely pro-Russian and the ties between him and Putin and Belarus and Russia are extremely strong and that's one of the reasons why we're seeing this you know slip into an authoritarian country. Yeah now if our listeners want to find out more about Belarus's fight to democracy they can go to episode seven of our podcast where we dive into what was what kick-started this whole process and who the movers and shakers of the Belarusian opposition are. Yeah, so um, I'm not sure what's going to happen in the future. Do you guys have any thoughts as to, you know, how this murder trial might, or how, sorry, how this investigation might go? And do you think there'll be any consequences if it's determined that Belarus was behind it? I think that it's very hard to say in Ukraine's political uh, political system into who will actually be charged because, uh, for example, Pavlo Sharamet, he was a journalist as well, and he died in 2016 to a car bombing. Now, uh, right now, three uh, three veterans from Donbass have been accused of being his murderers or his uh, accomplices to the murder, and uh, there's been a huge uproar from the public shouting that they haven't actually got serious evidence to conclude that these three veterans are the murderers. So it it can go like either way. Like it, they can find someone that is actually responsible or they could find and blame someone else for it. But to make it look like they're doing something. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully they do find out who it is. But one thing I do want to mention is, is that there are hints to... Well, there are uh, speculations as to who it could be and that it could actually have been from the KGB in Belarus. Now, in January this year, uh, the Belarus-based publication EU Observer had published an audio recording of Vadim Zaitsev, uh, the, head of the, Belar- the then head of the Belarusian KGB, apparently planning the assassinate- assassination of three exiled dissidents living in Germany back in 2012. And this had been vouched by a former Belarusian interior minister and a forensic audio expert for the authenticity of the recording. That's pretty scary that they're going after like even former like regime members. Yeah. Uh, So it's not even like the small fish of opposition activists. They're going for people who, but then again, maybe that's what you would do if you ran a tyrannical regime. Yeah, I would argue going after the small the small fish, as you call them, is actually um, probably a worse sign because that means that there aren't, you don't need to go for anyone at the top because you don't feel like there's anyone around, you know, the top that's, um, you know, a real opposition anymore. So now you're spending time going after the smaller ones. 
Well, it doesn't it doesn't stop from just being a an opposition from a public's perspective that you that you were an ordinary citizen and then you became a protester against the regime. You can even be former businessmen or even the former deputy prime minister as four individuals who were uh, an opposition uh, opposition leader, the former interior minister, as I mentioned, the deputy, the former deputy prime minister, and a businessman, uh, as well as a journalist and a cameraman. They were all kidnapped and. I believe uh, they were presumed to be dead, but later on, two former prosecutors who had fled uh, Belarus had revealed that uh, those four were killed by an elite elite death squad. So, (laughs) your position doesn't matter to uh, Lukashenko, really. You could be anyone, and even in high positions in government. And once you turn uh, your back, really, then you've kind of lost it. Do you reckon you stand that they've sort of made a mistake by killing this activist because it's brought Belarus back into world news again and sort of given Svetlana Tikhanovska a bigger platform to meet? Like she's just come back from a meeting with the US president and she's just had um, she had a meeting two days ago, I think, with the UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson. And all these events continue to give her a global stage to protest against the Belarusian regime. I think sometimes when we look at the way that dictators work, they tend to not be able to do anything but the wrong thing. Uh, they're so used to controlling things in their own country. And as they, you know, as more democracy flourishes in their countries, they tend to react the only way they know how, which is with strength and force. And so when you look at something we talked about on this podcast, I think Andriy mentioned that in in most cases, Putin at most steps of Ukrainian democratization, like true Ukrainian democratization, as we've covered in our last episode around the Orange Revolution and and thereafter, Putin has made several mistakes which have actually accelerated the proliferation of true democracy in Ukraine. And no doubt the Kremlin's support of uh, Lukashenko and the Belarusian government and its measures to do the same is really just, I think, more of the same. I mean, really, there's no... A government who willfully uses extrajudicial powers to take its take its own security service to take make assassinations in neighbouring countries and bring down, you know, I guess, tell planes to come down so they can take people off it that they want to take off it, even though it's not flying into that country at all, is, you know is behavior that I think shows that they don't really care what's happening on the world stage. They probably care more about domestic affairs and care more about staying in control as much as possible in Belarus. And I think the the question that has to be posed at this point, I mean, there's been several, you know, pretty high profile stories around Belarus in the past six months. And certainly the reputation of Belarus as a uh, bastion of freedom is, is, is not very positive. And so I think the question remains that as these you know, opposition leaders, as these callers for true change in Belarus continue to pick up steam, you know, what kind of dangers lie ahead for the Belarusian people? And, and also with Belarus being the last, you know, I guess, bastion of the old Soviet and um, the Soviet regime in some ways in terms of the other states beyond Russia, the question does become, you know, what does that also mean for Ukraine? What does that mean for Georgia? And what will the Kremlin do over time 
if it feels like it's losing its grip as well in Belarus. Yeah, and I would also add there that um, he's becoming a lot more bolder in his uh, in his actions. I mean, when we go back a year ago, yes, it was all it was domestic. Uh, it was a focus on his you know the domestic elections. Then you go to taking an airliner out of this, uh, you know, forcing it to land um, within the country. Now they're going international and they're doing you know um, operations that are now international in neighboring countries. And I think that's the, you're right, that escalation there is something to worry about, especially for what it's going to be like domestically once their reach starts to go outside of their country. And I think maybe this situation will act as a further eye-opener to Ukraine that Belarus's neutrality should never, is, no, is not guaranteed. And who knows like how Russia will utilize Belarus and what Lukashenko will be willing to do to maintain his grip on power. I think he's going to go pretty much to the extremes before it, he lets it all fall apart in his hands. So I think, I mean, it's just the next big event will be much worse than what it currently is now. And he's just going to keep making it worse for himself. This week in the news, Ukraine's state security service has arrested a member of the Islamic State in Kyiv wanted by Interpol. The woman, who is a citizen of one of the Central Asian republics, is wanted back home for recruiting members for ISIS. She fled to Ukraine and submitted false information in an attempt to obtain permanent residency. During a recent interview with Dom TV, President Zelensky called on the residents of the occupied territories in Donbass to make a choice. I believe, for the future of your children and grandchildren, if you love Russia and have been in Ukraine all your life while feeling that it is Russia, you mustn't understand that in the name of your children and grandchildren, you need to go and look for a place in Russia. That would be the right thing to do. He further clarified that whilst Ukraine will not be deporting residents of Donbass after it is liberated, they should strongly think about what country they identify with. Dom TV is Ukraine's purpose-built channel for the occupied territories and focuses on keeping them up to date with what's happening in Ukraine and dispelling Russian propaganda. Ukraine and Canada are in the final stages of negotiating the expansion to their existing free trade agreement. The expanded agreement is set to cover services and investment. Ukrainian ambassador to Canada Andriy Shevchenko said in a recent interview that the current deal has already expanded trade to the point where every fourth litre of apple juice in Canada now comes from Ukraine, and Ukraine is now a leading purchaser of Canadian seafood. 33 countries have already confirmed their participation in the upcoming inaugural Crimean Platform Summit, which is scheduled to be held in Kiev on August 23rd. The countries confirmed so far include the United States, UK, Poland, Turkey, the Baltic States, France, Germany, various EU nations, Australia, New Zealand, and South Korea. President Zelensky has said Ukraine will never forget about Crimea. Ukraine will not raise the issue of Crimea only in one case, when it will raise the Ukrainian flag in Crimea. Let us know which stories you'd like to hear by reaching out to us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Join us next week for more UK Life Abroad content.